5,500 cattle sailing to China this week will be the last live exports by sea after a ban on the practice. The export of livestock by ship from New Zealand has come to an end. It follows years of debate. Protests have greeted the arrival in Timaru of one of the world's largest cattle ships. And tragedy. The Japanese Coast Guard has called off its full-time search for Gulf Livestock One, the live export ship that sank in a typhoon in the East China Sea. 40 crew members, including two New Zealanders and two Australians, are still missing. But people in the industry say improvements have been made. The evidence that we see as an industry is that the animals are exceptionally well cared for. They're high-value assets. And Nationals promising to have another look at the ban. I can assure New Zealanders that these animals are treated to the absolute highest level of welfare standards that we can expect. But if better breeding's the end game, surely there's a better way. Genomics. It's been one of the giant leaps forward for the dairy industry. We've got the platform here to export good genetics, just not in a live animal. We should be getting better and better at doing that. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, why do our farmers send their animals around the world anyway? And if we're not using ships, how else does the agricultural sector do it? John Hickford is a professor of breeding and genetics at Lincoln University. He explains why we send livestock out of the country and why we bring it in. Well, I think if we focus on the export first, um, the, the advantage we have is that we maintain a, a very good disease-free status in our livestock. Our sheep and our cows uh, don't have diseases seen commonly elsewhere in the world and contagious diseases, and so if you think of things like scrapie... It is a degenerative disease that affects the central nervous system. Or foot and mouth disease. Foot and mouth disease is a very contagious viral disease which affects cows, sheep, goats, pigs and other animals. Mad cow disease. A potentially deadly brain-wasting infection that can be transferred to humans. They're not here in New Zealand, and so that places a premium on our livestock um, if, we, if we were to sell stock because you can take them to your country and know that you're not going to import a disease. That's hugely advantageous. That creates a value proposition uh, for New Zealand. Importing, far fewer imports. Um, we don't tend to import a lot of live animals of any kind into New Zealand, but when we do, it's to bring in completely new genetics. And um, we tend to do that by importing uh, semen or embryos as opposed to bringing in whole animals. So, you know, we'll bring in an embryo, fertilised egg, and we'll put it into a recipient to you in New Zealand or a recipient cow and get an animal born to that cow that we've never seen in New Zealand previously. These are Valet Blacknose sheep and they are actually known as the world's cutest sheep. That's the name that they've been given. And in 2017, there was two breeders who brought embryos into New Zealand. It's essentially a one-way trade outwards with live animals. We can't export for slaughter anymore. Changes were made in 2008 to halt the export of livestock for slaughter. So is it basically just so we can breed better? Um, yes, it's, it's movement of genetics. Aside from the trade, I mean, the trade is just to put livestock on the ground in some other country that may or may not be used in breeding. Often they were, they were just used productively, so, you know, they're going to cows that are going to produce more milk or, or sheep that were ultimately going to be slaughtered. But the basis of the trade is genetics and to improve breeding, both within New Zealand and, and offshore. 
So how and why do farmers export and import livestock? David Fullerton is a dairy farmer just south of Hamilton in Nahinapodi. He farms Holstein Frisian cattle. Imagine your classic black and white dairy cow. We adopted the, uh, or had an interest in genetics, a lot of the very best genetics uh, available in North America. We decided we wanted to be a part of that as well. So we started importing embryos um, off some of those top cow families in, in the US. And we've had them operating here in New Zealand for a fair while now. Okay, so that's the importing side. Do you actually import any live animals? No, it's so difficult in New Zealand now to um, import any any live animal at all. It's nigh on impossible to bring dairy cattle in from anywhere around the world it's and i don't think there's been a live cow come to new zealand for about mm, 20 years at least oh really 20 years so it's fairly closed new zealand's fairly closed and it's very very difficult now what about exporting why do you export we had the type of genetics that were suiting a lot of the markets if they couldn't access them quarantine wise out of say Canada or the US, uh, their next port of call was New Zealand. And uh, they knew that we had those type of genetics that were available in Canada and the US. And so that's that's how we got into exporting live bulls, embryos, uh, heifers to, to all parts of the world. How do you do it? There's a few different methods of actually exporting cattle. Well, I think the the most well-known way is live shipments on the surface. So that's what's caused a lot of problems in New Zealand in the last few years. The trade's controversial. Animal welfare groups in Australia and New Zealand have been at the forefront of campaigns to end what they maintain have been decades of suffering. The other way is air freight. It's um, very tight schedules, uh, high cost and you're generally moving elite stock around. And by elite stock, I mean uh, breeding bulls, breeding heifers, uh, and that type of thing into selected markets. The other way that we've done a lot of work around the world uh, is, is embryos. Plenty of different ways. So what would be, say, the advantage of, say, live exports over, say, embryos or air? Well, I think it's a simplicity. You know the product that you've uh, purchased. Your agents uh, are sent out into the field uh, with the requirements that have to be met and health requirements. They see them in the yards. They sort them. They blood test them. And so everything's very much on site, whereas... Uh, the embryo uh, requires a, a lot of work uh, by a lot of specialists. The numbers are certainly not guaranteed, whereas uh, the live cattle in the yards and blood screening is very, very quick, and that's the way it's been done uh, around the world. So can you give an example of what you've done yourself as a farmer in terms of live exporting genetics, when it's air freight, you, it's very, very serious. I mean, it's generally high cost per animal. You said your best animals, are you? Well, anything air freight is generally very, very uh, high cost individuals. And these are bulls that are perhaps going for AI purposes. 
around the world. It's important to explain that, in this context, AI refers to artificial insemination. Or uh, elite heifers. What kind of cattle do you send on ships overseas? They're all young cattle, really. They're ranging from, say, about a year old through to year old. Are they particularly high value compared to, say, the ones that you'd send on air freight? The ones on the air freight, I would say, are about 10 times the value of the ones that go on surface, perhaps 20 times. So why do you export them? Do you just not have the, the space for them here? or The surplus cattle that people have running around, genuinely towards the bottom end of what we're selling, they, they look well and everything, but on genetics, they're the bottom end of uh, what we're working with. So we're not exporting the very best. Well, we do export the very best ones, but the price range is um, polar opposites. How do you work with embryos? How do you get the embryos, say, from like a cattle on your farm and export them overseas? Well, firstly, we work in partnership with uh, one of the local uh, embryo firms. We enter into an agreement where, say, if there's 500 embryos to be made, they have their costs, I have my costs, and they handle all the quarantine work, the embryo work to make sure they're all suitable for export. The quality of them has got to be very, very high. And they do all the packaging, the export requirements. The quarantine uh, regulations for every country is quite different. You've got to have a, a qualified bet to sign all that off. The paper trail is very, very long, and it needs to be, because these embryos are generally paying a lot of money for them. So, I mean, we can't just let cows go off and mate in the paddock, can we? I mean, it's there's a bit more to it. You're trying to produce better milk. You're trying to produce better stock. Can you explain the reasons why you might use importing and exporting as a tool to help you farm better? Oh, I think man has always strived a bit like the racehorse industry. They want to have a, something that runs a little bit faster than the rest. And the, the dairy industry is the same. They want to have cattle that are efficient. If you feed them a ton of feed, you want them to give 25% more than what they were giving 30, 40 years ago. And that's been achieved just with uh, selective breeding and also cows that uh, can maintain their health while working quite hard. That's another thing that has been very, very important with the movement of embryos around the world. So a, a much more efficient cow, good size, without being enormous. And uh, they've, they've just got to have the basics. They've got to be able to move around. So they've got to have good feet and legs. If they've got good feet and legs, so they can carry a lot of milk. And then they've got to have healthy milk. So that's high protein. Most countries, it's high protein and low cell count milk. What we thought was a good cow, say, 25, 30 years ago, uh, it's evolved unbelievable amounts uh, in efficiency, health-wise, all, all those sort of things. And with genomics, it's been one of the giant leaps forward for the dairy industry. Here's John Hickford again to explain more about the importance of breeding and genetics. 
If we sent sheep to the UK, it was done in the past to, for example, improve uh, growth rates and meat yield on lamb carcasses. So we'd put Suffolk sheep into the UK and uh, they were used to um, improve lambing performance. Um, but equally, as I said, we imported uh, merino genetics and that was to get more and better quality fine wool. As, as we have moved genetics in, we can also move um, semen straws and embryos out of New Zealand and that's an ongoing trade. It's something that even as we speak I'm working with farmers here who want to on-sell their genetics by way of semen straws into other countries and um, you don't need a ship. These things travel it in um, liquid nitrogen or frozen and end up where they need to be. And again we have this advantage of being relatively disease free in selling that and also we have good livestock. We, we are good livestock farmers. We're world leaders in what we do there. So again, there's a, a market value there. People look at our sheep, dairy, beef production systems and say, you know, New Zealand's got good stock. Oh, where does genetics work and where doesn't it work? That's where things get complex. And when I'm teaching students about genetics, I have this um, statement which I use all the time about have genetics, won't travel. What that says is that you can take genetics from one place, so you you create an animal um, in another country that's based on New Zealand genetics. It doesn't mean it's going to work there. As we breed livestock in New Zealand, um, there's two processes going on usually with with breeding. One, um, we're very good in New Zealand using selection methods, so we have a a lot of fancy tools and kits um, to select superior animals, and they've added huge value to our industry. So the, the dairy industry sire selection probably adds in excess of $40 million of accruing capital value to our dairy industry every year. I mean, that's good money. But that's adapting genetics that we have here to purpose in New Zealand. So that's a, an active breeding thing. Then there's the passive form, which is that, you know, you're out on your farm and certain ewes are straggling, all the lambs aren't growing, and, and so they're culled. They're not bred from. And that's the passive adaptation of genetics to environment, and it's going on all the time. The moment you've got livestock, things sort of fall off the radar and disappear and end up in the meatworks usually. That too slowly adapts genetics to New Zealand conditions. Where the problem occurs is when you try to then export genetics overseas, you're working from the premise that what works in New Zealand should work overseas, and that's not a very good premise. We've seen it time and time again over many years that you'll take genetics from one country to another and it just doesn't work well in that country at first. So, you know, you'll put semen straws into ewes in another country and the progeny are born and they're not as good as you'd want them to be. And that's at the heart of that, have genetics, won't travel. What you've got to then go through is a cycle within the country where the new genetics has gone of adaptation to purpose and requirements there. And it's a bit of an art doing that. So there's no instant gratification or instant benefit from transferring genetics globally. It then has to be um, adapted to purpose in the country that it goes to. And that requires clever people, people who know how to breed livestock, people who know how to assess performance objectively, those sorts of things. There is no magic, oh, look, we've just got this wonderful new sheep and it does everything we want. It just does not work that way, and we see that time and time again. As you say, Cody, you've got to work on it with some pretty clever people in the, the, in the country. Um, yeah. How can you do that? More and more we um, are unpicking the um, DNA in livestock. And so in days gone by, you could just sort of look at the cow or the sheep and say, well, that one looks better. 
and that's how we've done it for about 15,000 years. And then we developed tools in the last 20, 30 years where we started to measure things and show um, repeated performance for traits. And so we call that quantitative evaluation and breeding. Now we have these gene tools, and so we can actually genetically profile uh, livestock using various gene tools and say, look, this one's got um, desirable genetics here at the level of the DNA that we'd want in a new market somewhere. So there's more and more DNA profile being used globally. Um, that then leads to um, a question that's been burning for 30 years now. Well, if we know what the genes are that underpin these good traits, can we just transfer the gene? Do we have to transfer the, all the genetic material, you know, the, the whole sperm or the whole egg? Could we just transfer the gene? And of course, that opens that whole door of genetic modification. We've effectively had a veto on that in New Zealand for 30 years. But it's something, again, I think we're going to have to go back and, uh, and address that issue again of can we use gene transfer techniques to modify livestock to do what we want them to do, and will that be accepted by the public? Here's an example of a farm problem that John's trying to solve right now. Overseas, they've identified a gene that affects how animals respond to heat stress, and it was found in tropical cattle. And so we're looking at how that gene um, may affect dairy cows in New Zealand. So the gene is, is here, it's been brought into New Zealand by way of the transfer of genetic material, and we're looking at how that might affect how cattle respond to heat stress. And heat stress is, um, is there in dairy cows. It's something where they get hot above uh, roughly 25 degrees, and it depends on humidity and other things, but they can get heat stressed, and when they get heat stressed, they don't produce as much milk. It's a, an animal well-being welfare issue. If we are losing milk production because of heat stress, we've, we've got a problem. And that's, that's becoming more and more important, of course, as we go down this pathway of climate change. I mean, we're probably facing down the barrel of one of the warmer years again this year. And so, you know, with mean temperatures rising, you can see the impact of that on our milk production and the quality of our production systems. Back to the ban on live exports by ship, what impact does David Fullerton think it'll have? I see it as um, a real backward step protesters and certain groups are not happy with it but the alternatives are, are not that great either and I mean these cattle have to go somewhere I don't know where these 50 60 70 thousand head of cattle are, are going to go New Zealand's have got a finite amount of grazing farmland and you know I, I think um, partly justified too that things had to improve but boy they have improved and I, I think if they went onto one of these boats and my nephew's been all the way to China on, on a boat he's farming and he went up there and it's quite staggering uh, the, the comfort uh, on the high seas that they, they have these days and the high end stuff can still be moved like uh, bulls, air freight and things like that it's still uh, that's still open that ship that David's nephew was on and only lost six of the 5,000 stock on board. We can't keep them alive like that on our own farms. I mean, we've got eczema, we've got sunburn, we've got a raft of uh, problems that we have on farm as well uh, that we can't keep them alive. If we had 6,000 head on our farms and uh, we only lost six over the course of a month or so, I'd be incredibly happy. If we are exporting on ships our lower-value cattle or our lower-value livestock, does that actually 
bode well for New Zealand where we're trying to position ourselves as a high-value proposition? No, I think the, the cattle, uh, and I've witnessed uh, cattle uh, around the world that have been shipped from New Zealand. Uh, on one farm, we saw them from Canada, Australia, US, New Zealand, and Uruguay, I think it was. So the New Zealand cattle that are leaving uh, are performing. And the other thing is that they wouldn't come back to buy more if they weren't performing ad- adequately in, in these countries. You're only ever as good as your last shipment. They wouldn't come back for repeat business if, if they weren't performing okay. But if it stays stopped, you know, if we don't get it back, what is the future of exporting and importing? The export uh, trade, it's, it's going to take away hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from the breeding through all the communities of, of New Zealand. Um, and, and like I say, you're getting people that are losing their jobs, being made redundant over this. The, the far-reaching effects of this uh, are not really flash. John Hickford sees the argument from both sides. It obviously has a direct financial cost. We've lost a market opportunity. Our stock had value putting them on boats and sending them overseas, and people were uh, making money out of that. But that is aside from the other issue, which is the welfare issue. And so, you know, as we trade in livestock products, be it milk or meat or whatever around the world, wool products, then um, we want people to perceive our products positively. Um, we want our industries to be um, perceived as being world leading or you know elite quality or whatever. The ambition would be in, in, from government in, in banning live animal trade is that our industry is perceived more positively because we've made a move that they've argued has been done to improve animal welfare. And, um, you know, as I said, the, the hope is that that makes our production systems look even better, because they're very good production systems anyway. That's a prediction. I don't think anyone can actually model whether we're going to accrue value out of that, but that's the hope, I think, is that by banning this trade, we're going to um, be making some sort of political statement internationally about um, how we value livestock and our farming systems. Well, what now for the future of trading livestock in New Zealand? Uh, I still export trade in genetics, just semen and embryos, not whole animals, and... um, there's still a vast uh, value proposition there, and um, I, I think that that's a growing business and and one where we can uh, be world leaders because as we're clever, we've got good technology, we've got good scientists, I'm a bit biased there, but we've got the platform here to export good genetics, just not in a live animal. We should be getting better and better at doing that. I mean, it's certainly in some of our emerging markets, it's it's something that is being looked at intensely. I mean, I, I do a lot of work in China, and they are very keen to use DNA-based technologies to improve their livestock production because they've got a vast population to feed, and India is showing interest in this too. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be live animals. It can be the export of semen and embryos and, and, and DNA-tested or not to um, be able to improve what you're breeding for in your country. So it's, it's, it's not like we've killed off a vast opportunity. We've stopped one part of the trade in genetics, and it's, it's one that was a, which has welfare considerations, whereas I don't think anyone is really too concerned about the export of semen and embryos. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. 
Thanks to John Hickford and David Fullerton. Ma te wa.